0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're dedicating the show to our listener, Jen, who sent us this email.
0: I love your podcast. It's refreshing and inspiring. I have one complaint. Lots of your content only applies to the privileged few. For example, most people don't have the IT skills, charisma, or emotional resilience to set up a portfolio career. Can you share some episodes that can help those of us who interact with ordinary people, the ones who can't afford university fees or psychologists?
1: We love hearing ideas, so let's explore Gens. Time to sharpen your pencils. Sit up straight, folks. Today, it's all about learning at work. First up is Dr. Sean Gallagher. Sean is the Director of the Centre for the New Workforce at Swinburne University. They've just released a report called Peak Human Workplace looking at what we need not just to survive but thrive in work into the future.
2: We surveyed uh, more than 1,000 Australian ordinary workers, from bus drivers to CEOs, from all workplace settings and all types of organisations, from part-time, casual, to gig workers, to full-time workers. So a fantastic snapshot, a nationally representative sample of Australia's workforce.
1: Describe the current work landscape and the issues that are arising around skills, please, Sean.
2: I call it the, um, the unprecedented era. And there are effectively, it's unprecedented because it's not just digital technologies that are driving transformation. It's combined with the global mega challenges that are occurring all the time. And, you know, some of the research that we've found is that three in five Australian workers feel that disruption in their jobs. They feel that the skill set that they have is not going to see them out five years, which is, I think, a pretty extraordinary statistic. You know, one of the key things that came out of the research is that three and four Australian workers, you know, that's a big number, they want to be learning new skills in the next 12 months and they're not quite sure where to go or what to do.
1: And so you've uncovered this sort of increasing need. So how much uh, do we know about the amount of learning that's actually happening at work then?
2: Sadly, Not enough. I think one of the key findings of the report is that learning at work is not keeping up with the pace of change of the world around us. You know, we asked many different types of questions about learning and the work. And, you know, one of them was, have you had any formal training? sponsored by your organization in the last 12 months and only 42% of Australian workers were able to say yes two other sides of learning, sharing of knowledge and expertise with your colleagues and around the workplace. Only 37% of Australian workers said that their workplace encouraged that form of learning. But I think perhaps most concerning of all is that when we ask workers, how many hours do you spend a week at work learning? And we defined learning as broadly as possible. We it's any, any activity that advanced your skills, your capability, your experience, your expertise, it could be doing a new task. It could be watching an online video. It could be talking to a colleague. It doesn't necessarily have to fit the formal version of learning. And we found that just over half, 51% of Australian workers are effectively doing no learning at work at all. But when we broke it down I think that there was some concerning outcomes there that um, it seems to be of those who are doing at least an hour of learning a week, and that's a pretty low bar, that tends to be those who are already privileged. So, you know, university educated, full-time workers. And when we looked at types of roles, senior executives and managers seem to do much more learning in the work, whereas frontline workers, you know, caregivers, salespeople, labourers, they're not doing much learning on the job as compared to those in perhaps what we might call more privileged positions.
1: And so, what can you extrapolate from this?
2: Importantly, given the context that we find ourselves in, these complex disruption and, you know, 12 months ago, I don't think any of us would have expected for us to be in this world where everything seems to be turned upside down but i think it's an important framing for changing our mindsets about what learning is and you know traditionally we've we've seen learning as formal structured delivery of content you know being a, a master of knowledge kind of thing but i think increasingly and especially given that with the rapid changes of the environment around us workers are going to come across problems that they weren't expecting they're going to come across opportunities in in the flow of work and so we need to empower our workers to learn in the flow of work and that takes effectively three forms you know they need to take charge of their learning to to learn what they need when they need to solve problems or to advance work they need to be encouraged to work much more collaboratively and to share knowledge and to to do more problem-solving with colleagues, and ultimately, they also need to be encouraged to create new knowledge. In other words, to solve problems that haven't been solved before, and by doing that, they're actually creating value for the organization.
3: Hi, my name is Sarah, and I work in digital media, and I'm a micro-credentials addict. So I mainly just do these like on my own accord at a company that I've previously worked at. They did have like a roadmap of things that you should do in marketing, but mainly I just do these on my own accord because I'm a super nerd. Some of the courses I've done are learning MailChimp, Google AdWords, prioritizing your tasks, how to develop your career plan, tips for writing business emails, Excel for marketers, advertising on Facebook, writing a media plan, common meeting problems, B2B marketing foundations, cultivating a growth mindset. And I'm currently, I have 48 in progress learnings. And the one that I'm focusing on now is SQL Essentials Training. My boss actually asked me one time if it was only me using the account because I had so many different courses that I was doing. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's just the way Sarah is. She was just doing a lot of courses.
1: <laughs> so what are micro-credentials? And should we be joining Sarah in her addiction? To shed light on this is Professor Liz Johnson. Liz is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education at Deakin University. But it seems even defining them isn't simple. Uh, uh,
4: Ah, micro-credentials is a complicated term Mm. because it covers a wide range of learning activities, and they can be as short as a few hours to as long as weeks and months. So, in one way, it's an old idea, and it includes long-standing training, such as technically based industry certificates. If you think about certification from IBM or Microsoft or Cisco, they're all forms of micro-credentials. But there's a whole lot of more recent approaches that have appeared, digital badges, and you can think about LinkedIn Learning, uh, those kinds of skill-based badges, or the ubiquitous now MOOCs, massive open online courses, which offer all sorts of links of training to to anyone actually, uh, openly across the world. Sometimes micro-credentials are paid for, sometimes they're free.
1: Is it just a, another fancy name for short courses then, Liz?
4: It is, um, in a way. <laughs> the, the, the language is really confusing and it depends who you talk to. So the Australian government, for example, has some initiatives out now under a program that uh, is labelled short courses appropriately, but they're talking about educational qualifications. So they're not as short as, for example, industry partners might think, but they're short in terms of degrees. So it's all a matter of your perspective, unfortunately. So one of the things that we really need is when people talk about micro-credentials to be really clear about what they're talking about.
1: And are they recognised in the same way as degrees are locally or internationally?
4: So again, it's a moving feast. Mm. So the um, the current position of micro-credentials is that they're not formally part of our higher education framework here in Australia, but they do have a lot of credibility with employers, depending on your area. So if you're working, for example, IT is the classic example. If you've got certification for particular skills from recognised providers, that's often a prerequisite for employment in the industry. In other areas, micro-credentials may assist employers to look at you, or they may assist you in doing your job, but they're not required. Research data says that employers expect micro-credentials to be more and more recognised in job selection and promotion. But
1: does this lack of standardisation and recognition make things slightly confusing for employers?
4: Sure does. So one of the things that we really need is standards around information. It's a bit hard to put them back in boxes now because the the term is used widely anyway. But what we can do is ask for clear and consistent information. So everybody's clear when they look at a particular example, just what are we talking about?
1: And if I was a student, what is the advantage of putting together my micro credentials then?
4: We think about it in different ways depending on what kind of learning you're looking for. So at Deakin, we think about micro-credentials in terms of career development and you might think about that as somebody who's starting out in a career, somebody who's thinking about changing their career or somebody who's thinking about advancing in their career. And that's a fairly common way of thinking about how micro-credentials work. So, they can be about a particular technical skill that you you either need just in time or for a current purpose. I've got one of my staff heading off to do um, training in a particular programming language, Python, and that's because he needs that for a current task that we're doing. So, he'll do a micro-credential for that and that's just-in-time training. But you might be looking at building your skills or awareness in a new field so that you can do some exploration and think about where else you could be. And of course, there's a a strong element here of interest. People choose to do micro-credentials because they're just interested in the area.
1: And just to clarify, could I stack a whole uh, number of micro-credentials together and then come up with a degree?
4: In theory, yes, you could. The bit that is slow is that if you're going to stack things together, and at the end of it, your university or college or education provider has to say that you've achieved a certain level, you need to have assessment points along the way through. And not all micro-credentials have them. So, you need to be aware of whether or not that micro-credential will give you enough evidence for you to claim that you've met those learning outcomes. Now, that sounds a, a little bit like jargon, but if you think about it in terms of employment, if you're going to an employer and claiming that you have terrific capability in, for example, project management, they're going to want some evidence about that. So, if you're going to build that into a degree, the awarding institution wants some evidence too. So, it comes back to whether or not you've got assessment built into the micro credential, which can be evaluated by somebody else.
1: When I look at how uh, some of the younger generation are learning, for example, just picking up things on YouTube or using video to learn, uh, I can see that the trend uh, with micro-credentials seems very consistent with that. Sort of being a bit provocative here, but do you think this will um, threaten the university degree and in fact, maybe the younger generation will choose not to undertake a university degree?
4: Look, there's certainly discussion about that. So there was some headlines from Google a couple of years ago saying that they no longer felt that a university degree was the only prerequisite or the only channel into a job at Google, and they were very interested in how people put together a portfolio of learning rather than a degree. Degree is actually a portfolio of learning. What you're doing is showing that you've achieved the things that the university or college has set out for you to achieve. So, yes, but I think there's a... The way to think about this is to think about how you put it together. So the thing about a university is that it's put together a schedule of learning for you, which helps you to navigate your learning. And it also has the links back out to industry, to accreditation bodies, to join the two ideas together. So what do you need as a worker in this area and what's the best way we can put that together? The other thing that learning providers have which is uh, very helpful, is that they really understand how people learn. And there's a lot of learning design and thought that goes into those programs to make them more valuable to learners. If you have to do it for yourself, you need to develop the, the skills to curate your own learning and develop your own learning. And it's a sl- of course you can do it, but it's a slower path. So I think there's still a, a very good... Reason why you would want to go for the long form learning with a provider that's got that depth in expertise. Make them your partner in your learning. Micro credentials can also be helpful after a
1: career break, as another listener found.
3: I'm Abby and I've
1: studied AWS Restart program. The reason I chose to do a short course was because I already had a degree in IT previous to my break, and I didn't want to, like, at this stage of my life, I didn't want to waste one or two years of in a uni degree or in a diploma to upskill. So this was really short course, but intensive course to give you enough confidence that you know something about ID and you can actually search for a job. Uh, The Australian government is very keen on micro-credentials. In fact, they've rolled out hundreds of short courses as part of their higher ed relief package. But what are some of the limitations or issues you can see with this type of education, Liz?
4: You're quite right, the um, short course programs, because there's more than one from the federal government, have been extremely popular and useful for uh, learners. And I applaud them. What they did was they took existing courses, not entirely, there are some new ones that were developed for it, but largely existing courses and made them a bit more accessible to learners. And they are both postgraduate, so after you got your first degree, and there's some pathway courses, which would help you to think about future um, degree study. So, yes, they've been very popular with learners and quite rightly too. I think the the challenges here come from helping people to see beyond just one uh, certification, one piece of learning, one uh, dive into study, to see it as lifelong learning. So, that's the next step. If you make learning into shorter and shorter pieces, then you've got to show people how to sew them together for the longer term because the learning need is not going to go away. It's only going to increase.
1: And I love the idea of a lifelong learning account that some other mm-hmm. countries are doing.
4: Tell me about yeah. how this works. So, the to do that, which is also a very good idea, what you need is for learning providers to share the information they have about completions about certification and the the federal government is actually looking at this and and in the early stages of thinking about what could we do about it could australia do a similar sort of thing what it means is that it's a bit like your linkedin learning your linkedin profile you collect all the evidence that you have there of your learning and you sew it together and the value of doing that in a comprehensive systematic way is that you can get that authenticity of each certification. So somebody holds the record, you know who's got access to the record and you know whether or not the data in it is correct and verifiable and then the learner can then make that available to others or simply for their own career development. I think it's a terrific idea and Australia is a small enough jurisdiction that we should be able to bring it together. I love the sound of that. Hmm. Yeah, it's really good, and it w- will help help people to think in terms of careers instead of a one-off thing.
1: I wonder what my account would say, though, because I've done some very bizarre short courses: yeah, African, drumming, not- African drumming, African drumming,
4: Flemish you. fencing. <laughs> what would yours say, Liz? It would say, Liz, finish the French course that you started two years ago. It, <laughs> it, 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 I didn't it, finish it, mine would say, finish, It would say finish things, is, is what it would say to me.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Liz.
4: It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: <laughs> oh, I feel somewhat relieved to hear that even the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education at Deakin University also has unfinished courses. That was Professor Liz Johnson. Now, what will study and work look like for our youngest generation? Forecaster Mark McCrindle has been researching this and shares his results.
5: That is the generation we're moving through the generations. There's a new one. We might know Generation (laughs) X and Y and Z. So we got to the end of the alphabet. So the generation born from 2010 through to 2024. So we're talking about the, the young children of today. That is the next generation and they are called Generation Alpha.
1: And... How does what they're learning at high school then need to change to prepare them for the workforce of the future, Mark?
5: Well, firstly, they'll work in jobs that don't yet exist, just as today's school leavers are starting in jobs that didn't exist when they began school, you know, blockchain developers or social media marketing or cybersecurity or, you know, coders and robotics and AI and drone pilots and driverless Train operators. These are these are jobs that we didn't have a decade ago. So so that trend will continue. There's going to be a lot of new technological jobs, but also there's going to be the traditional jobs, but they will utilise technology even more. Probably a key thing for Generation Alpha into the future is that they will have more jobs and move across more careers. Our estimate is 18 separate jobs in their lifetime across six separate careers which will mean a lot of upskilling and job retraining and and, and adapting and uh, and certainly being lifelong learners so that they can remain relevant and future-proofed uh, throughout their longer uh, lifespan in the work.
1: And so what did you find out about the importance of undergraduate university degrees for this Generation Alpha?
5: Well, they're heading off to university in, in higher proportions, and that's been an ongoing trend. Uh, if we go back to uh, us Generation Xs, uh, less than a third of us um, headed off to university. Uh, by the time we we now are dealing with Generation Z, those that are leaving school, it's edging closer to half. And probably for the Generation Alphas, uh, more than half will end up with a university qualification. But but probably more importantly, they will be continuing their, their learning as they go through their life. And the base degree, the, the, the start of their tertiary will not be the finish of it. They'll, they'll need to plug back in and pick up some skills as they go. And it won't just be degrees or the theoretical skills. They'll need the job-ready skills. They'll need those applicable skills. So, so it's important that we think of the future for them of learning, not just being about higher education, but also vocational learning, uh, because they're going to need a lot of that that's more skills-based than just theoretical.
1: And what's your call as a futurist on the future of degrees then?
5: Well, they, they do have a role. Um, they they are great foundations for us. They help us um, learn how to learn, how to research, how to analyse. They help us set processes. You have the task there, break it down to complete the assignment or the project. They are useful job skills. And we are in a knowledge economy, so gaining a degree of knowledge and moving through the hurdles there to get that is excellent training. But it's not so much the content that we learn in a degree that matters, but more you know those skills that get us ready for the role. And and so that's got a place. But I think when it comes to the actual skills that will be applied, that's where some of the shorter courses are some of the learning on the job and indeed some of, of what takes place just as we try out different uh, tasks or software or indeed you know, learn ourselves that's going to be key as well. So, you know, it's really a matter of uh, being hands-on, being inquisitive, uh, making sure that we don't rest uh, in our role, but are adapting and responding to the changes around us so we don't end up in a a dead-end pathway, but are adapting to the changing world of work uh, to remain ever employable.
1: Now, Mark, you write that uh, quote, when starting out at least until 30 and probably for life, what you learn in a role matters more than what you earn. Why?
5: (laughs) Well, if we think about particularly young people starting out, you know, they might be looking at salaries and and thinking, oh, this place is paying a higher salary than that place but actually it's what you learn in those early career years that are so key. It's the mentoring you get. It's the experience you get, the breadth of that job description that is going to set you up for the future. You know, the fact is that $5,000 extra here or there isn't going to make a difference in the long term for your life early on, but but if you have a great mentor, if you're in a great team where you're learning a lot, where you're expanding your skills, where you can put down on the CV, hey, I, I perform these sorts of functions and perform these sorts of outcomes, these were some of the clients, that really sets them up well for the next job and the next job. And so it means the stepping stones through their career can be further spaced apart. They can have greater leverage, if you like. And, and that's why I say what you learn in a role matters more than what you earn in a role. And it's particularly the case when we're younger because they are the growth years through our roles. They are the, the the years where we step up through career and really establish ourselves, perhaps before the family comes. Perhaps it's in those early years when there's that extra enthusiasm. We, we don't have the same constraints to be home at a certain time. We can work a bit later, a bit longer and, and, and really push ourselves and it does set us up well, uh, but I'm saying you know maybe it's forever, um, even when we're mid-career or later. That being that learning uh, in the role is so key um, because you know we we are able to work a little longer in life, and we can look after the earnings um, for longer. We can we can have investments that might help out there, but learning on, on on the job, you know, investing those hours to really grow ourselves to make sure we're we're fresh and relevant and Uh, empowered in our roles really is critical for our future.
1: Thanks so much, Mark.
5: Thanks, Lisa. Great to talk.
1: And Mark's book is called Generation Alpha, Understanding Our Children and Helping Them Thrive. Thanks for your company today, but before you go, I have someone else for you to meet. Now, you may know her from the telly or from her afternoon radio show on a rival Network, or you may know her as the writer of the Zero Fucks Cookbooks, or you may know her as a host of Radio National's terrific podcast, Ladies We Need To Talk. Yumi Steins, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're all about work, and I did want to ask you about your early days. Mm. I remember you at Channel V. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a while ago, I reckon 20 years ago. Yep, 21 years ago. So I'd love to know, what sort of advice would you give your younger self, your Channel V self, Yumi? Well, how long have you got, Lisa?
0: Because I could go on and on about um, all the things I wish I'd been told back then. Oh, give us, give us a juicy one. Yeah, well, first of all, I think I didn't know that you could research a band before you interviewed them. <laughs> Because I thought I got the job because I just knew about all bands, you know, and I did, I knew a lot. But there were always some that I didn't know about and I really wished I'd done more research at the time. I look back and just go, you idiot. Um, But 20 years ago, it actually would have been a lot harder to research maybe. Oh, do you know what we used to do? We used to have piles of magazines that we could flick through hoping to find (laughs) an article about the band we are about to interview. So the internet was, you know, pioneering back then. Another thing I wish I'd known um, is that... And this is quite profound, Lisa. All right, so strap yourself in. Let's go there. Okay, it's the only thing that you can't buy or one of the only things you can't buy is your reputation. So Mm. in your working life, always conduct yourself ethically and do your best.
1: And once again, would you have done anything different there? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I don't think I had a bad reputation,
0: but I think I partied a lot <laughs> and I think I had heaps of fun and I d- don't think I'd do any of it differently. But as I get older, I really see how important it is for you to be reliable as an employee, to be somebody that can be counted on by your co-workers and for people to know that if they engage your services, that you will deliver to an extremely high standard. Consistently, and there's just no replacing that consistency. It's almost like a religious practice. You have to just try hard every single
1: day. Do you know it, the hard thing about the older self telling the younger self is that, the, you know, we know that the younger self would never listen? <laughs> <laughs>
0: The youngest self would be like, bitch, shut up. I'm busy,
1: okay? I'm busy Just because you fun. got to party. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me not to party. I've got partying to do, idiot. <laughs> Let's talk about your new season of Ladies We Need To Talk. You're up to season five. I know. Does that make you feel... I'm really proud. It's just been
0: such hard work, though. Like, this is a hard job to do because you never want to get it wrong. Um, Mm. And we have a lot of heavy topics, but we kind of try and mix it up with some fun stuff as well. So we kicked off season five with a story about fetishes. And I think everyone thinks that they know fetishes, but I don't think we get it. And I think one of the great takeaways from that episode, which is already available, is is that somebody who has a fetish is in touch with their sexuality in a way that maybe the rest of us could learn from?
1: Oh, and I've got a good question. This is from Magic Maria Tickle, our producer. Mm. And what are some of the other topics you'll be covering this season, Yumi? <laughs> <laughs> this might be meaningful to you: intercultural relationships.
0: Um, Ooh, I could probably uh, reflect on that. Yeah, I think I think a lot of us could. <laughs> people who are taking their last shot at getting pregnant and what that means politically, philosophically, and the politics around hair. Now, we've talked in the past about pubic hair, body hair, but what about the hair on our heads? Weirdly, we never, ever talk about it, but women follow certain protocols about what's expected of the hair on their heads without question. So on that particular episode, we will be questioning it.
1: Love it. Always food for thought. Thank you so much, Yumi. Thanks for having me. And you can catch Ladies We Need to Talk with Yumi Steins wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.